to this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to encourage you with the most important truth in the entire universe. God loves you. Now, last week, we jumped in on this question of proofs of the resurrection. We started this a couple weeks ago, talking about this question of making, being willing to make hard decisions, of looking where the evidence leads us, and being willing to roll up our sleeves and to follow the evidence wherever it takes us. The issue that we're looking at here, the resurrection, we're looking at for two different reasons. Number one, it's going to be our, one of our first proofs that we were in fact created, that we're not just a cosmic accident. But number two, as I mentioned last week, you're going to find that a lot of really smart people start making some really philosophically questionable statements when faced with some of the evidence that science has uncovered that points us directly to a creator of the universe. We're going to find a lot of people backing off and maybe doing a little bit of a David Hume and saying, well, we need to wait until there's more evidence or we can, you know, we can make a lot of decisions. But what we can't do is we can't accept any evidence that would point to the miraculous or point to God's intervention. That's not a great scientific approach. If the evidence takes us to a place where it points to a creator, which is where we're going to be jumping off in the next couple of weeks, looking at this question of were we created or did we evolve, then what we need to do is we need to be willing to follow the evidence to where it leads us and not reach that point of going all the way up to the decision and then backing off and saying, well, it's really impossible to tell. And if we just wait long enough, science will give us a different answer. Nothing wrong with following the evidence where it takes us and allowing science to provide us with guidance that helps us to make our decision. That's what we're trying to do in this process. But it is wrong to look at this and go, well, we're just going to wait for science to give us the answer that we want. And that's what we want to avoid as we go forward. Now, last week we talked about three different points. Three different reasons or proofs that we see that point to the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, Jesus was a real person, and he was crucified by the Romans and killed by the Romans. That was established historical fact. Number two, his female followers found the empty tomb. And number three was the dramatic change in the disciples' behavior. Having gone from being just terrified and on the run and scared to death that the, the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, were coming after them next, to all of a sudden being willing to just stare them down and say, bring it on, we're ready for you. What was it that evoked a change like that? But that leads us to number four. Number four, number four is Saul of Tarsus. You see, you had a very powerful, rich, young leader coming up in Jerusalem at that point named Saul of Tarsus. And there's not a lot that we know about him. We piece various pieces together of this time before he became Paul, the greatest missionary the Christian church has ever seen. We know that he was a young ruler. He was extremely influential. He was very well educated and trained. He was zealous for God. And so what happens after Stephen dies is that he begins persecuting the church, trying to bring it down. He believes that the church is just an apostasy and it's got to be destroyed. And so he sets out to do just that with the blessings of the Sanhedrin. And by the, by, the admission of the, by the admission of the book of Acts, he's got the church on the run. The church is fleeing Jerusalem. He's having people put to death unless they'll blaspheme Christ, unless they'll blaspheme Jesus and say, 
we, re we repent of it all, we recant of it all, none of it actually happened. Unless they're willing to do these things, he's having them put to death. And yet suddenly on the road to Damascus, something changes. And the persecutor of the church becomes the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. We quoted from Paul the last time, where he said that the Lord had appeared to all of these people and last unto him, someone who was born out of time because he had persecuted the church. That's coming from 1 Corinthians 15. When we look at that and we recognize everything that Saul had done before Jesus renamed him Paul, we recognize all of the amazing things that he accomplished, but sometimes we forget. The story on the surface doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody who has the church on the rope suddenly convert and become the greatest missionary the church has ever seen? And he gives us the answer. When you're persecuting the church for professing Jesus as Lord and you meet the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, that's a game changer. That absolutely changes things forever. And Paul was first and foremost the one who would admit that and would say, Jesus saved me, Jesus changed me. And it was that meeting on the road to Damascus and all the time that he then spent with the Lord in, in fellowship and prayer after that, that forever changed him. But there is no explanation outside of him having seen the resurrected Jesus, the thing that he denied so vehemently, the thing that to him was blasphemy of the highest order. That thing that he so hated changed him when he realized it was true and it broke him and destroyed him. He realized all those people he had put to death, all the damage that he had done, believing that he was serving God was all wrong. And he did it with the best of intentions, but he would spend the rest of his life carrying that guilt because he realized that everything he had denied was true and that Jesus had risen from the dead. Number four will be Saul's conversion. And it's impossible to explain outside of his admission that he met the risen Jesus. Number five is for me the most powerful. And it's because I was probably so awful to my little sister when I was growing up. And a lot of other people as well. Number five is Jesus' half-brother James. When Jesus was alive... His family didn't believe he was the Messiah. Mary, his mom, believed, and, and we don't and and we know from Mary's testimony that you know she she kept all these things in her heart. And for Mary, there had to be so many difficult questions that she had. And we know that his brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Messiah. The Bible tells us that outright, that his brothers and sisters did not believe on him. Even after performing a notable miracle, his brothers and sisters still didn't believe. There's good reason why, what we'll talk about down the road. But none of them believed, and yet James, who didn't believe before Jesus died and was crucified and was buried, suddenly becomes one of the leaders of the early church. He becomes known as James the Just. In 61 AD, he will be, he will be stoned to death. He will be killed and, and ultimately killed by the authorities for his role professing his stepbrother as the Messiah, as God on earth. Something that to him as a Jew, and he never left his Jewish roots behind. But this faithful Jew looked at it and said, he was God with us. He was the Messiah. What was it that could convert your own brother? Somebody that you didn't believe in when he was here. Somebody that you watched perform miracles and you still said, he's not the Messiah. 
after he dies and is buried, what is it that converts you over to believing and believing so strongly that for the next almost 30 years, you are one of the leaders of the early church before you ultimately die for those things that you said? What is it that could possibly convert your, your half-brother? I, I, I look at people I know, I, I, and I can't imagine, if, if you've got a family member, somebody that you grew up with, you're going to be the hardest person to possibly convert to all of this. And yet he's converted. And again, the, the question that we have to ask, if you go back to N.T. Wright's when we started all of this, what is it that made them say this? And there's only one possible explanation that works. Now, this is the point with these five pieces of evidence on the table. What else is it, knowing that these events actually occurred, and there's nothing on the table, again, when you look at these things and you make these statements, none of them on the surface is entirely unreasonable. You look at these things and you look at how they reacted. So the question is, why did they react that way? The answer that they've given is, we reacted that way because Jesus rose from the dead. He was beaten to death, he was crucified, he was buried, and three days later, he physically rose from the dead, healed from his wounds, physically resurrected, and we saw him, we ate with him, we drank with him, we did these things, we talked with him for 40 days, and then he was raised to heaven. They said that is the explanation of what happened. And they believed it so strongly, they went to their deaths professing that that is what occurred. All they had to do was recant those statements. All they had to do was walk it back and say, never happened, I'm going to go be a fisherman again, and they would have lived to a ripe old age. But they wouldn't. So you are faced with this evidence. What do you do with it? What do you do with this evidence? There's only a couple of choices on the table when you really think through it. Number one, do you take David Hume's way out? Do you take Hume's escape and say, well, from a historical perspective, we just can't know? So we're going to run from it, and we're not going to make a conclusion. And that's, that's not a good thing to do. You want the truth. This is something that is critically important in your life. This is a proof point that could change your life. You can't run from it. You can't deny it. What are the other options on the table? Option number one, well, Jesus didn't really die. Now, there's two different ways this one goes. Number one is that somehow... Everybody thought he died, but he was really just badly injured. That didn't make any sense at all. You, if you take somebody and beat them nearly to death, you crucify them, and then you run a spear into them. And then when you think they've died, you throw them into a stone tomb, wet, damp, and cold for three days. You know, if you ask any medical professional, I think they're going to tell you that person's not coming out of there alive. There's no way that that happened. And the truth is, even if it did, let's say that it did. Let's say that it really happened. Jesus is going to be mutilated. He's going to be crippled forever. He is going to be just a, a shell of a human being at that point. He's going to evoke pity. The disciples would feel sorry for him, but they're not going to go to their graves professing him as the risen Lord. They're going to go out there and go, he was a lucky guy. He survived, but he certainly wasn't who he said he was. The other angle where this goes is something that we find that comes out of the Muslim faith which is this idea that Jesus was a great, a great prophet. He wasn't God. He was a great prophet. But he also didn't die on the cross. The Muslim belief in all of this is that God substituted someone for him. 
in a lot of cases, it's Judas, which, you know, seems kind of ironic. And I think a lot of people kind of look at that and chuckle and go, well, good, it serves him right. The problem in this idea is it's self-defeating. If Jesus was a great prophet, well, what was his greatest prophecy? That he would die for the sins of mankind and be raised from the dead three days later. If God substituted somebody else, that turns Jesus into a false prophet. And worse, just a horrible person for sending all of his disciples to their deaths, professing that he died and rose again. You turn Jesus into something horrible by trying to do that. So that whole idea is really self-defeating. It doesn't stand up to logical analysis. The other thought out there is, well, it was a hallucination. It was a mass hallucination, and that falls apart really quickly all on its own. Jesus appeared to multiple people at multiple times over a 40-day period. That doesn't have, that's not how hallucinations work. That just goes without saying. So clearly it's not a hallucination. There's another idea that everybody just got lost and went to the wrong tomb. The tomb was never really empty. It's just that everybody in Jerusalem literally forgot where it was. And, you know, they just, when they went, they found an empty tomb and went, hey, Jesus must have risen from the dead. The problem is that doesn't work with the narrative. Nobody actually believes that because the disciples were changed because they met and spoke with the risen Jesus. The empty tomb is what initially caused them to go. What happened to his body? You remember the initial reaction of the female disciples was they, they were going, who stole the body? The empty tomb on its own wasn't necessarily enough to convince them that anything had happened other than that the Romans were just horrible people and they had stolen the body. The empty tomb combined with the resurrection appearances is what was convincing to the disciples. So that doesn't work. There's some people out there who propose that it was all spiritual. He was just a ghost. You don't get to have this both ways. I mean, the reality is every one of the Gospels goes out of their way to say it was a physical resurrection. We ate with him. We drank with him. We touched his physical body. You know, Jesus encouraged Thomas, touch the wounds on my body. That doesn't work if it's a ghost. And again, you can't have this both ways. If you're going to agree that, that Jesus raised from the dead, but then try to make it spiritual, how can you argue for both? I mean, you may as well argue for neither at that point and try to pick one of the others. When you eliminate off the table everything else, and you actually follow through and you say, okay, all of these other ideas are much more likely to have occurred than Jesus raising from the dead, except... None of these ideas actually answer the question of what happened. None of them fit the evidence. We have to come up with what is it that best explains the evidence that we have at hand. And there is only one answer for that. Somehow, Jesus physically raised from the dead exactly as he said he was going to do. This, there's a point in all of this. It is a miracle. It was intended to be a miracle. God wasn't going to do something routine. Routine wouldn't have changed the lives of all of these people. The fact that it was a miracle is what changed their lives. I, I know I start off every message by saying this idea of the most important truth in the universe is that God loves you. That truth is what overwhelmed and so saturated the disciples that they were willing to face a sure and sudden death professing this message. If you look at the life of Thomas, we talked about Thomas from uh, the book of John, where John quotes 
doubting Thomas's reaction. Thomas will go on to eventually die in India. Years, decades later, Thomas is preaching the gospel and professing halfway around the world what happened. And Thomas is run through with a spear because he professed until the end. This is what actually happened. Jesus raised from the dead. There's no other explanation that makes sense. This idea that the disciples stole the body and made it all up. That's the last one you can throw out there. The disciples made it all up. They stole the body. And, and Matthew even says, that's what's commonly reported amongst the Jews in Jerusalem to this day. But the problem is the church began in Jerusalem. And the Sanhedrin would have happily rolled open the tomb and sold tickets to have destroyed the early church. And they couldn't do it. The love that God had for them so overwhelmed them and drove them to spread this message despite the fact that it cost them everything. Goes without explanation unless Jesus rose from the dead. You know, someone asked me one time, why? Why would you start this podcast? Why would you do that? And you know, the reality is, I know how much Jesus loves me, and it means the world to me. Jesus means the world to me because he was willing to die for me. When I was unlovable, he loved me. When I was unredeemable and no one would, he gave everything for me. His love for me has changed me forever. And he is more important to me than anything. And the reality is, you are more important to him than anything else. And that's why I would start this podcast, so that you would know how important you are to him, because he means everything to me. If you would have asked Thomas, Thomas, why would you go halfway around the world to a group of people that you never could have possibly imagined you would meet in India? Why would you go there and risk life and limb? He would tell you, Jesus' love for me was so great that I watched them take him up and hang him on that cross. And he gave everything to redeem me and all of mankind. He meant everything to me, and that's why I did it all. Because I knew that someday you would mean the world to him. When I say that the most important fact in the world is his love for us, is that God loves you, don't ever underestimate what that means. It is the most important fact in the entire universe. We're going to start looking. Next week, we're going to look at this question of what role does faith have in all this? Why didn't God just show up and reveal himself? We're going to talk about that because God doing that destroys relationships. It doesn't fix relationships. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week. And then we're going to jump into this question of were we created or did we evolve? But as we look at some of these things, you're going to find some of the most brilliant scientific minds in history who get right up to the truth, and when they're faced with the possibility of a creator, they draw back and they just will not make a decision, or they will propose some of the most amazing philosophical just hoops to jump through trying to get away from the possibility that there could be a creator. And the reason we start every week with this idea that the most important fact in the universe is that God loves you, is that when you get up to that moment and you suddenly start realizing you're facing the Creator, don't run. The, the most important fact in the universe is how much your Creator loves you. He gave everything for you. Don't ever run from that moment. That's the moment where you just need to open up your arms and embrace your Creator because how much He loves you. I want to thank you for joining us this week. And as we go forward, in any case, 
If you've got questions, email us at prooftograce at yahoo.com. I'm happy to answer those questions. You can also find us on our website at prooftograce.com. And our podcasts, as always, are out on Apple and Spotify. Love to see you join us next week. And in all weeks upcoming, don't forget the most important fact. God loves you. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.